We have breaking news now. Here it goes. You are not too old, and it is never too late. That's what Growing Boulder is here to tell you. I'm Bill Schaefer with Growing Boulder founder and CEO Mark Middleton, and over the next hour, you will hear from those who are living just as large, having just as many adventures, and making just as big a difference at this stage of life as they ever have. And the best part, they are all here to tell you that you can do it too. Mark? Man, it's going to be an exciting program. Thank you, Bill. In fact, uh, you're going to be enlightened. Uh, We think you'll be motivated and inspired by everyone from worldwide experts to normal, everyday people who are overcoming the kind of obstacles that we all face. They continue to live with passion, purpose, and fulfillment. And I'm talking about folks like Dale Sanders, who at 80 canoed the entire length of the Mississippi River, and then at 87, he did it again. Why not? And that's just part of his story. You're also going to meet Diane Gilman, the blue jean queen of the Home Shopping Network, who has come out of a long, difficult cancer battle with advice you don't want to miss. And from the Growing Boulder Classics Archive, you'll hear from the legendary Art Linkletter and his inspiring thoughts on successful aging, ordinary people, extraordinary lives, only on Growing Boulder. I want you to try something right now. I want you to close your eyes just for a minute. Picture yourself at 87 years old. Now tell me, what do you see? Are you sitting on a couch watching TV? Or are you in a canoe paddling the Mississippi River? Are you looking at your cell phone? Or are you hiking the full length of of the Appalachian Trail. Well, our next guest is amazing. He's not an athlete, not a runner, yet since he was 80 years old, he has made his life an adventure. He's been the oldest person to paddle the Mississippi, to hike the Appalachian Trail, to finish the Missouri River Race, to complete the Florida National Scenic Trail. And on top of that, when he found out that some plucky 81-year-old broke his record for paddling the Mississippi from end to end, a few months ago, at the age of 87, Dale Sanders did it again. Who is this guy? How is he doing? Why is he doing this? So here he is from Tennessee, Mr. Dale Sanders. Dale, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm even (laughs) doing better now because you just really inspired me with that introduction. Well, it's all you, my friend. I, I guess the we're all sitting at home listening to you or in the wherever we are, and we're thinking, 87 years old. How are you doing at 87? Well, physically and, well, mentally too, <laughs> but physically I'm doing great. I, 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 I tell you, I, I just stay active and uh, try to stay happy and active in my life, and, and things are just coming together really nicely in my older age. Of course, I've been active, you know, my whole life. I was in the in spearfishing, you know, at national level and athlete of the year for the United States in, in my early years. But I, I raised my family in there for, you know, about 30 years. And now now when I after I retired, I started getting more active back in the early uh, turn of the century. And, and it's just sort of culminated into me doing these uh world record age world record breaking events starting with the 20 in 2015 with the Mississippi River 
It's amazing to all of us, Dale, which is why we're so happy to have you here because we hear your story. But to be honest, from a selfish point of view, we're thinking about ourselves. You know, we're thinking about, hey, what happens uh, when we retire from work? Is that the end of our purposeful, fun part of life? And we worry about what happens in our 60s. Here you are. You hit 80, and you put the pedal to the metal, totally change your life. Are you here, Dale, to tell us that from 80 on has been one of the most exciting phases of your life? From 80 on has probably been the best years of my life. That's a true statement. Uh, I, I was uh, doing a, a talk with a bunch with a group of older folks here a while back, and all it just hit me all of a sudden. What's there's two different groups here I'm speaking with. One was just sort of sitting around and seemed to be not happy and frowning and not active. The other group was cheerful and and uh, active and looked like they were fit. And it turns out that it looks to me like there was two groups there. Because I have learned since then that unless one pushes their limits, you'll never know what your true potentials really are. Oh, now, this is a great point because, you know, no disrespect here, but who would let their 80-something-year-old family member do what you did? I mean, we do the opposite, right? We we want you to sit in that rocker because we want to protect you and treat you like a fragile antique. And you're saying that's wrong. That's wrong. As I interviewed one of the people that paddled with me uh, this past summer on Mississippi River, and he says, he doesn't want your help, and he doesn't need your help. <laughs> I guess so the question was, did you have to help him out much on the, on the river? And his response was that. <laughs> I tried to do it myself. And I, I just, the other day, I unloaded a refrigerator from a truck, big refrigerator from a truck, all by myself. It's just a matter of finding out how to do things step by step and piece by piece. And I'm telling you, you need to get out there and one needs I, I I believe that getting out there and pushing myself and and doing these extreme adventures are are what's probably keeping me happy and, and alive. This is so interesting. Uh, let, let's go back a little bit and tell people a little bit about it. I think the first big thing, the loud thing you did was paddle the Mississippi from the beginning in Minnesota all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. And that took you three months. The Appalachian Trail took 10 months. Dale, that's a lot of time to be alone with your thoughts. What happens? What what does that do to you when you actually have the time and the quiet to get inside your own head? Well, I, I've, I've learned that I really enjoy being out there alone. It just gives me so much time to think and, and to study and figure out why I'm here and where I am and what's going on. And I have had some really extreme emotional uh, experiences on top of mountains, for instance. And that's, that's where it seems to to hit me the, the, the most of what I'm doing and what, and looking down on the world. And I just get very involved in, in uh, the, the concept of our creator and and how to be one with nature and one with God. It's just it, these things have just all started appearing after I became active when I retired from the Department of the Navy. 
And isn't it true, Dale, also, while you were alone with your thoughts, you started wondering, why am I this guy? Why is it important to me to do something loud and, and to challenge myself? And you realized it came from being bullied when you were younger. Yes, yes. I, I really think that's why I'm out doing all these challenging things now is to try to still prove myself because when I was going to school, bullying was accepted. The principal would do nothing about it. The teachers and parents did nothing about it. And finally, I our school didn't have an acrobatical program, but I started doing acrobats with a friend. We got pretty good at it. So good we were sending they were sending us around to neighboring schools high schools performing and the bullying all went away well in my mind i attributed to the fact that i was doing something physically i couldn't do it my my ability and in the classroom as a scholar and trying to get good grades just simply didn't exist but when i could do something physically and all the bullying went away I thought that that was what it was, and it probably was, and that's why I still today do all these extreme physical things, I think. It's incredible. We're talking with Dale Sanders, who really is an inspiration at 87 years old now, and you can hear the energy in his voice. He's done things that would have been unthinkable a, a couple of generations ago, and, and not that it's all positive either, because if it was easy, everybody would do it, right, Dale? You've you've gotten... Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, I, on the Appalachian Trail, I almost quit. You know, half a dozen times. I love this story, Dale, because this really hit home to me. You were on the trail. You were depressed. You were in pain. You were at your wit's end. You you couldn't take the suffering anymore. So you called your wife. You said, honey, I'm going to quit. And, of course, with all the sympathy in the world, she said, no, stop whining. Get back out there and finish your hike. You have done your research. (laughs) I don't even know where you found that, but that is absolutely true. Some people would say, wow, she's so mean. But for you, that was exactly what you needed to hear. That is exactly what I needed to hear. Because if she, I was surprised. I figured she was going to be saying, well, come on home. I'll have have a good meal waiting for you or something like that. But instead of that, she told me, "You no, you can't quit. You'll never forgive yourself. I, I can't say those words even today without almost crying. It's because it's so rare at our life stage now, at this age, that people accept you and and support you and truly believe that what you're doing, these challenges, are not silly little things. This is your purpose. This is your reason for being here. Yes. Uh, I've got to get, get get back to, back on the air here. <laughs> I, I was uh, getting a little emotional there. Sorry about that. No, and that that's why this is so important. Dale, talk about that emotion. Where, where is that coming from? What are you feeling? Coming from my heart. Man, I feel, I feel so inspired with life. The adrenaline just flows through me. It just, and just, and it didn't, I, I did that when I was younger, but not like it does now. I, I just am so blessed to have life and to have health and to have my, you know, wits still, I can, you know, still here. I can still remember things pretty well it's not as well as i used to be but it's still darn good um so i'm i'm just so blessed to have my life and to have this inspiration and and the adrenaline flows and that i have to keep me going 
And a lot of these people that are meeting you, especially when you're on the trail, it, it's not other 80-year-olds that are hiking the Appalachian Trail. You're bumping into mostly 20-year-olds. What do those people think of you, Dale? What do you think of them? Well, my greatest fear before I went on the Appalachian Trail was, you hit on it, would I be accepted in the culture? Because it, the, the hiking community in these long trails, it, whether we like it or not, it's it's a subculture. And I didn't. I wanted to be accepted in that subculture, but it, uh, you know, nobody at 80 years old does the whole trail. You know, there was maybe a day or two on it, but that's it. But I was really not only accepted, but I was embraced. I'm telling you, I, I I learned that in the adventure world, age doesn't matter. What matters is you're out there doing an adventure and everybody identifies. And that sounds so sensible, Dale, but you know that it doesn't work that way. If an 80-year-old comes up to somebody and says, you know what, I, I want to uh, go to the high school and walk around the track four times, people can say, that's great, Dad. Why don't you just go sit down, you know, and watch reruns of Matlock? <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much the way they think about us 80-year-olds and older. And that, that's that got to hurt. Well, it doesn't bother me anymore because I I, uh, I know better in my heart, and that's all that matters. So, so help us out, Dale. What can we learn from you? What can we do to be like you as we age? Well, I'll tell you what, I, I, I focus on three things when I go out and talk to people in groups. And I'll just shorten this up real quickly, but I, I say that you have to live happy. And if you, no one can tell you the formula for how to live happy. It's something just has to come from one's heart. And it, it doesn't matter what age it is. You got to live happy. And then, of course, the next one I think is you have to have a quality spiritual life. And I, I'm not, uh, I'm not pushing any specific type of religion, but I'm saying it needs to be a real quality spiritual life that you can, you can really get your teeth into. And if you want to be really happy, do that, and that really then puts it, the icing on the cake for happiness. And then the third thing is have to be active. And I'm telling you, I am active and you have to get out of the, you have to get out of the chair. You have to get out of the house. You have to get outside and do, I'm not knocking the gym. The gym is good, but it's so much better to do those, those exercises and things that raise your heart rate, that get your adrenaline up. It's much better to do those out in nature than it is, in my opinion, inside the facility. And there's so many things we can do in nature. We can hike. We can swim. We can bike. We can spearfish. We can do uh, rock climbing. There's hundreds of things out there. Find your find your niche and get out there and start doing it. Dale, this is fantastic, Dale. I hope your message gets out to as many people who can possibly hear it. It doesn't matter how old you are, folks. Dale has the answer. He's finding purpose. He's finding meaning. And he's taking advantage of life to do good, to to, to raise the bar, to, to live life differently than other people expect. And, you know, I'm almost afraid to ask you this, Dale, but at, at 87, most people are looking back and they're thinking about the things they've done or what, what about you? What, what is your what's next in life? 
Well, right now I'm. I'll be. Uh, I was so active in the spearfishing world that I will be the official photographer at the World Freshwater Spearfishing Competition uh, in May. That's my next big adventure. And after that, I'm going to tour the West Coast again. I haven't been to California up the coast for to Oregon in many years, and I want to do that again. But my next big physical adventure that I'm planning is the Appalachian Trail again. My friend took my record away from me. I, you know, I want to get that oldest person to have ever hiked the Appalachian Trail record back, and I'm going to do that. If God willing and the creeks don't rise, I'm going to do it when I turn 90. Dale, you're, you're, you're fantastic. You've been so motivating and so inspiring J- just in this conversation alone. I, let me give you a chance to uh, give, give us a little bit of the Dale Sanders pep talk here before we, before we wrap up. Okay, folks. Get out there and stay active. Eat quality foods and uh, enjoy life. And when you, when you find things that you like to do, do them. Stretch your limits. You'll never know what your potentials are unless you try. And I'm telling you, you have to find and maintain happiness in your life. And if you can figure that out, I think you can deal with anything that the the world can throw at you. Fantastic. Fantastic advice from an 87-year-old who turned— I just put that together. There's a few words there, but I don't know. But it's, it's true, though. It, not only is it true, you've proved it's true, and you're living it. And this is a guy that turned his life around at 80 and began to do these things. Dale, I, I really hope you can feel our gratitude to you for your willingness to share your story and experiences. Now, I have to admit, I don't think any of us want to do what you've done, <laughs> but we do want to find ways to put bits of Dale Sanders into our lives. And you've got such a relatable way of helping us see that more is possible for all of us, and we thank you so much for that. Great visit with Dale Sanders. Coming up, you may know her as the Blue Jean Queen from Home Shopping Network. Diane Gilman shares her new outlook on life after a long and difficult battle against cancer. She talks to our Amy Sweezy next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Caring Transitions, a senior move resource to help families ease the stress of life's transitions, offering relocation, home cleanouts, and the resale of everyday household items. Locations near you at caringtransitions.com. Cancer is a disease that just does not care who you are, rich or poor, young or old, celebrity or regular Joe. You might know the name Diane Gilman from the Home Shopping Network, where she was known as the Blue Jean Queen. She waged a painful, lengthy battle against breast cancer and is determined to now share what she's learned. And who better than our own Amy Sweezy to talk with her about life, overcoming obstacles, and of course, blue jeans. So you are known for your blue jeans. You created them. You sold them on the Home Shopping Network. Everyone's heard your name. Congratulations, first of all, on your huge success. Thank you. Thank you. It was just, I I mean, I didn't even see myself as a designer. I saw more like I was an inventor. 
who had a light bulb moment and it changed the history of teleretailing and really changed the history of jeans as well. Well, that's amazing. We, you're known for that, but what a lot of people don't know about you is that you actually uh, survived an abusive childhood. Can you share just a little bit about that? You know, I grew up in the 40s, the late 40s, early 50s, and there was no such thing as an abusive home, especially if you were from a home where you were going to uh, school in a Cadillac every day. But uh, my father was definitely unbalanced and used to chase me around the house with a butcher knife. And I would lock myself in a bathroom and spend an entire weekend day there. And I think the only thing that saved me was from the time I was a toddler. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I had a love, uh, almost could call it an obsession with fashion. So the other thing I think I knew too, because they offered no, my parents offered no support. They didn't believe females should work. They should just get married. Wow. I had to leave home. And I walked out of my house, wished them good luck, didn't have a dime in my pocket, and made my own way in the world for the rest of my life. But it was, as painful as it was, was how correct it was. And how brave. Very. You took that strength, you know, and that power and moved forward and then started becoming a fashion designer, but you didn't just start designing jeans at age 60. You were designing jeans in the 60s, right? And in the 70s for people like Janis Joplin? Yeah, I decorated their jeans. So Janis Joplin, the Jefferson Airplane, Gracie Slick, of course, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Deep Purple. Actually, my girlfriend had a song, uh, one of my friends, had a song written for her, Seamstress in the Band, uh, Sly in the Family Stone. Um, wow. Rod Stewart. I would take their clothing, whether it was a pair of leather jeans for a guy or it was denim or a denim jacket and hand painted and shredded and patch it and jewel it. And, you know, a garment could take weeks at a time, but I was doing what I loved. And uh, I was so about the craft and not the money. It was just fantastic. And you took that experience, became a huge success. 19 million pairs of jeans sold on the Home Shopping Network. 20 million now. Real women with real bodies. I love that. So you're on top of the world. You've sold millions of pairs of jeans. And then in 2017, at the age of 72 you're diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. You know, I was just cruising along and thinking, yeah, life is, I mean, it was always difficult because I actually took my brand, DG2 International. So I was commuting between London, Paris, Munich, Milan, Toronto, and uh, didn't go to Australia, but it was in Australia and Florida for HSN and ignoring all these signs and, and telling myself, oh, it couldn't possibly be. There's no cancer in my family history at all. And it was cancer and in both breasts and in one breast stage three. And I found that out Christmas 
Eve. Oh. Typical of me to make a have to choose a real drama date and time. And um, I was lucky enough to get the head of all breast cancer surgery at Mount Sinai, Dr. Alyssa Port, who said to me, and she really spoke my language. First, she said, women like you always do well with breast cancer because you're used to working so hard your whole life. Just consider this another job. So I did. I thought, okay, for one year, this my job is going to be saving my life. And then she said something that to me was so seminal. She said, look, if it hasn't spread, which thank God it hadn't, you've got a localized disease in a part of your body that you don't really need. And, you know, I took those words with me to the operating table. I never looked back. And actually, I was back on air 10 months later. I had started treatment at the end of January. I was back on air the end of November. And we set an all-time sales record. We sold 225,000 genes in less than 24 hours on air. So being a hard worker got you through the cancer. (laughs) Being a hard worker gave you something to look forward to and something to do once. Completely. Yeah. It's always been about making the most of every moment of my life. I'm very aware of that. And I know you share about the childhood all the exciting, you know, gene stories from the 60s and 70s with all of your musician yeah. friends. You also share about your breast cancer journey in your book, which is called Too Young to Be Old. It is fantastic. Who Thank should you. read this book and why? Well, I think, first of all, I'm going to be perfectly honest. The book is focused on females because I think we have a much more difficult time aging And we're sort of told after the age of 55, just be the invisible woman, which I refused to be. But if you're younger, it gives you a lot of guidelines for crossing the Rubicon of all the hormonal changes you're going to go through and doing it more easily with more acceptance and more gracefully. And if you're older, i hoping for everybody that it is a deeply inspirational book about treasuring the years you have left, knowing that life is finite, but that makes it more precious, more piquant, and realizing what a miracle life is, and knowing that you've still got opportunities. For me, at 77 years old, I just stepped away from live television and I'm in the midst of rebranding myself, hopefully to be a Silverella influencer on social media and having a blast doing it, learning all sorts of new stuff. And so as Yogi Berra said, it ain't over till it's over. Well, the book is filled with so much inspiration, and I want to share one of your quotes in there that I just loved. You say, I am not anti-aging, I am pro-living. Anti-aging implies you're not moving forward. And then you quote Emma Thompson, the trick is to age honestly and gracefully and make it look great so that everyone looks forward to it. 
let's show the generations that follow us how to be old the cool way. Yeah, totally. Totally. You know, um, a lot of that happened for me when I went in for chemotherapy in my first session. And I saw how many women were who were about to get treatment were upset and bitter and really on edge. And I saw how pressurized the chemo nurses were. And I thought, I am not going to be that kind of old lady. I'm not going to be the kind of old lady that comes in and is going to take out her disease on everyone around her. I'm going to make these nurses love me and all the patients around me love me and have everybody look forward to seeing me. And I carry that forth in life. I think it's all about breaking the stereotypes of growing older. And one of those stereotypes is that all of your opportunities literally along with you kind of dry up and it is a power of intent if your intention is to lead a beautiful productive third act then you will so believe in yourself and pick something you've loved to do all your life and do it i love it it sounds like flipping the stereotype on aging is your mission in life totally we are all about that here at growing boulder So what advice do you have then for others? I know you've already given some, but what advice do you have for others, especially women who say, I'm too old to do that, or I'm too scared to do that? First of all, take those words out of your vocabulary. Every time you go to say it, stop yourself. You're never too old. But I think we all are in need of rebranding ourselves as we get older. So when I came out of cancer, I had a choice. Should I dye my hair again? Or should I actually own who I am and be more authentic? So first thing I did was I went bolder with white hair, which I now absolutely love. Was it a little bit scary? Yeah, it was. A lot of women say, oh, I'm not ready for that. But the other thing I would say to you is if you have had a corporate job all your life, a corporate position, don't think that corporate is going to treasure you or value you. You may want to go entrepreneurial if you want to do something further in your life and get that fear out of your system. Fear breeds fear. So be clear on your intention. I made a list of things I loved about my life as I came out of cancer, things I didn't like about my life, and then what I was going to do about it. I always suggest you just make simple lists and put it on paper, and it's in front of you. And you know what? It could be something as simple as you bake chocolate chip cookies all your life, and Everybody said, God, those are the best chocolate chip cookies I ever tasted. And that becomes a new hobby that turns into a business that gives you a sense of purpose, a sense of self-esteem, a sense of your place within a community. Just honestly, I, I always quote Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones. He had a great remark. He said, you know, life's a funny thing. Nobody wants to grow old but nobody wants to die young. So if you're going to make, 
the decision mm -hmm. to grow old, you can do it in a way that is really bountiful and, and so nourishing. So all up to you. That's what I say. Give yourself that freedom. It's all up to you. And what are your intentions for those years that to me, um, so much looks like a miracle in my life, honestly. I love your silver hair. You're absolutely gorgeous. Thank you. <laughs> it took a while. <laughs> if people want to find you, website, blog, they want to purchase the book, how do they find you? Uh, the book easiest is on Amazon or Amplify Publishing. And thedianegilman.com, you'll find my website, which we're just putting up, but you'll also find Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. All right. TV's Jean Queen, Diane Gilman, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. We're on a mission together. We are with you. Thank you, Amy. And up next on Growing Boulder, a classic interview with the legendary Art Linkletter. Find out what he knew then that can still help us all live better lives today. This is Growing Boulder. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. I'm Mark Middleton with Bill Schaefer, and Bill, this may be one of our first. Time to dust off an interview we did back in 2006 with Art Linkletter. He was more than just a celebrity from shows like House Party and Kids Say the Darndest Things. Art has been a positive influence on our culture for more than 60 years now. Incredible man, 94 years old when we talked to him, and he had just published his 28th book called How to Make the Rest of Your Life the Best of Your Life. What he had to say then is still changing lives today. I, of course, had a very low start because I was abandoned as an orphan in a little town called Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan in Canada, and adopted by a poor but loving street preacher, uh, an evangelist named uh, Fulton John Linkletter. So I became from nothing to a Linkletter. Did you ever reunite with your birth mother, Art? I never knew who they were. Huh. I, I, so, uh, wherever they are, I hope they're well and happy, but they probably won't be because I've outlived everybody else. Well, you've, you've obviously come from some fantastic genes. <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, your, your beginning as an abandoned infant, and of course, you lived through the Depression, you rode freight trains looking for work. Um, obviously, despite the struggle that, that your life was early on, uh, you became one of the most positive, kindest voices in, in our popular culture. Is it just your nature to be optimistic? Yes, I was born an optimist, and I was born an alpha. An alpha is the head wolf in the wolf pack. And in my lifetime, I was thinking the other day when I was looking over my biography, that almost every organization that I've ever belonged to, I belonged because I thought it was going to be fun or interesting or something, and I became president or chairman of the board. And I'm 
currently president and chairman of the board of a half a dozen organizations. And did you aspire to that leadership role? No, I just, well, I was, I was always uh, eager. I was always a volunteer, and I always did the thing that I volunteered for. So I was a hard worker, having started with nothing and having to work for everything I got. I naturally adore work, and I work now six, seven days a week. Uh, well, I'm working on Sunday today, selling a book. I'm busy all the time. I'm very healthy, very happy, sleep well, digest well, never had a headache, and I'm looking forward to my 100th birthday in six years. You, you know, I read somewhere, Art, that you have already um, signed uh, to, to, to give a lecture in the year 2012 on your 100th uh, birthday. You're already booked. I figured if I had a contract for a paid speech uh, uh, when I'm 100, I'd fulfill it. So the only way to fulfill it, of course, is to live. So, <laughs> so I'm kind of guaranteeing that I've motivated. You know, there's so much to, to ask you about. it. And, and before we're finished today, I do want to talk about your, your most recent book because it looks fabulous and, and it's got some tremendous information in it. But can we talk about your TV career just a little bit? Sure. Because you have done something that that I don't think anybody will ever do again. You one time had television shows on NBC, CBS, and ABC all at the same time. How did you manage that? Well, I was in radio, and I was on various networks. And uh, when television came along uh, in 1950, national, I just sneaked my shows gradually into television. Nobody objected. I had... uh, the house party on CBS five days a week, uh, which started in 1943. I had People Are Funny on NBC, which started in 1940. And I had Life of Linkletter on ABC, which started in 1946. So um, uh, for a time, for the first year, believe it or not, since all those shows were ad-libbed and they all had something to gain by being on television and nothing to lose, uh, and radio, they were on both radio and television. So since all of those networks had TV and radio both, I was on six networks every week. That is amazing. And you mentioned the networks that they were on, Art, and it's not just that they were on. House Party ran on CBS for 25 years. It won two Emmys, one of the top-rated daytime shows ever. You, you did entertainment. You had household tips, interviews. You in, in many senses, paved the way for Oprah, Martha, and others, didn't you? Yes, I did. I was one of the first ones. As a matter of fact, they talk about the, the great sudden advent of uh, reality shows, mm-hmm. the Survivor and the Amateur and so forth. Well, I was one of the first ones to ever do a reality show on radio, and it was a very simple show that had no production, no prizes, uh, and no... Um, orchestra, no rehearsal. It was called The Man in the Street. I took a microphone out on the street in San Diego and just stopped people and asked them, who who are you? Where are you going? What do you think about this or that or the other? And uh, that was all it was. And that was the beginning. There had never been a show like it before. And that was the beginning of the wealth of ad-lib shows that came along, which was then from Man in the Street to um, simple quiz shows in the studio, then elaborate quiz shows, then stunt shows, like People Are Fighting and Truth or Consequences, which Ralph Edwards did. Right. And then on I went to into movies, nightclubs, state fairs, conventions, and began writing the first of my uh, 
of my 28 books. Well, you mentioned you, you made a television show, a radio show, uh, out of your interviews with men on the streets. Uh, I'm a former TV guy myself, and, and I fully understand that not anybody can, can do interviews with people on the streets and make them entertaining. And that art of your many skills, I, I think, is one that I appreciated the most. And we also saw it in uh, Kids Say the Darndest thing, which, uh, Things, which was a, was a feature of House Party, wasn't it? Uh, that's right. In fact, uh, I actually invented children on the on the radio uh, in 1940 when uh, my five-year-old son Jack, who's now 69, uh, came to the uh, came home and saw me practicing on a one of the first of the home recorders. It it was a record machine, but it was a microphone attached, and I was practicing my voice. And uh, so I called him over to the microphone. And I said, Jack, uh, step up to the microphone. I'm going to interview you. What did you do today? He says, I went to school for the first time in kindergarten. And I said, and how did you like it? He said, I ain't going back. <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean you aren't going back? You have to go back. Why don't you want to go back? He says, well, I, I can't read and I can't write. And they won't let me talk. I don't know why I should be there. <laughs> I played that. I played that on a local program in San Francisco, and the mail came in from around, in tremendous amounts just for that. People wondering how marvelous it was for a kid who was not a professional. There had been children, you know, on radio and TV, but they were professional singers or actors or acrobats or pianists or something. But this was just a kid talking about his home and his family. And that was the secret of my 26 years. I had youngsters from 4 to 10 when they were growing up in the family, and I had an opportunity to talk about all kinds of things, pets and brothers and sisters, and it was something that everybody had uh, had lived through in their own family life. Uh, For instance, one time I asked a little boy who was on the program, uh, I said, Freddie, you don't seem to be having a lot of fun today. What's the problem? Well, he says, my dog died this week, and I'm not happy. Well, I consoled him. I said, look, Jobby, he will be waiting for you up in heaven. Hmm. And the little boy said, what would God want with a dead dog? (laughs) That was the kind of surprising and wonderful things that were a hallmark of all the children. And and we miss that kind of stuff on TV today. Of course, occasionally there was a shocker because... The kids didn't know what they were saying, uh, and they were never cut off the air by censors. We had plenty of censors in those days, but it was all unintentional. For instance, I asked a little a boy one time if he went to church. He said, yes, sir, every Sunday. And I said, well, what church do you go to? He said, oh, he said, I can't remember. He says, oh, he said, we are, we're either Catholics or prostitutes. <laughs> Yeah, th- th- those were those were fabulous. And Art, you made it seem so easy, almost like falling out of bed. You've written 28 books, and the one that uh, you are just releasing, How to Make the Rest of Your Life the Best of Your Life. Uh, tell us about that. What's the key to staying vital, would you say, in your 80s and 90s? Well, about 15 years ago, in my lecturing career and in my work uh, in colleges and universities, I joined a a new department just starting in the medical department at the University of California at Los Angeles. It was gerontology. And I found out that this country is graying. We are now living 30 years longer than it was when I was born. 
30 years longer. The average person now, instead of dying at 47, is uh, dying at uh, 75 to 78. And so in studying that, I began to look at all the things that made those later years that were given to it by God and our scientific studies in the last few years, uh, how I could get that to the people. Because you should start thinking about your old age when you're 35 or 40. You shouldn't smoke cigarettes. You shouldn't abuse alcohol. You should try to get eight hours of sleep. You should have, when you get married, a married a mate that doesn't cause stress and all the other things that have to do with life. And there's many of them, including diet, of course, as well as sex life and everything else, all in this book, which is like a, a big a seminar book. Uh, Mark Hansen, who wrote and put together Chicken Soup for the Soul, right? we worked on that for a year. We phoned, among other things, uh, about 40 of the leading scientists and uh, people who had surveys and worked with older people, and we got conversations that we began to sprinkle through the book so that the book is not just Mark and me talking about older people. We decided that it was time that the public began to realize that you're going to live a long time and you better learn how to live, especially after 55 or 60, and you, shouldn't, and you can't start then. You should start earlier to watch all the things we talk about. And so our book is actually a very, very valuable book. I'm very proud of it. And I think every family should have one because you're all getting older. There's only one other choice you have, you know, yeah. dying. Well, it certainly is a great opportunity if, if folks prepare for it, as you say. And our, based upon your life, uh, I'm guessing that you're not a big believer in, in retirement, at least the standard concept of it. That's right. I have actually lived all of the things, practically, that we talk about in the book. And uh, it's, a, it's a fact that... Uh, as you get older, there are things going to happen to you. And one of the first things that's going to happen to you is that you're going to become a subject to the weaknesses and the frailty of old age. And then, of course, you have all of the the major things that kill you, like heart, cancer, stroke, and Alzheimer's. As a matter of fact, I'm the chairman of the board and was one of the founders of an international Alzheimer Research Foundation, and been very, very active in the study of problems with the brains, like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. So, actually, I'm almost a doctor now, <laughs> after all these years in the great laboratories and talking to the great scientists of the world. And we put all that down, and then we also have a very interesting book on, on sex. You know, there's a myth about old people that after 60, they're either sick, sick or senile or sexless. And none of those things are true. So great to hear him again. His truly was a rags-to-riches story, and as big a star as he was, he was a better person. Married nearly 75 years until he died in 2010 at the age of 97, Art Linkletter. Well, everybody else has had their say on this program so far, so up next, Bill, I'm going to tell you what's on my mind today. This is Growing Boulder. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures.
the most sought-after experts, thinkers, and speakers on the subject of aging in this country is the founder and CEO of Growing Bolder. You got it, folks. Life is all about perspective, and Mark Middleton's is unique. So let's ask Mark today, what is on your mind? What's on my mind is an interview that we're going to have on this program coming up soon. Uh, Our producer, Jill, has booked a guy by the name of Mark Sacco, who is known as the patient whisperer. He's an emergency room nurse who is teaching doctors how to communicate with patients. And, And Bill, this is on my mind because he talks about what we talk about, yet he does it in the medical field. And that is the power of our belief system, the power uh, of our minds. He's a hypnotist who has realized that the words that we use when we're talking to patients can impact the outcome that they have. And, you know, what he's done is so powerful that the Mayo Clinic has now adopted it as therapy. He says that part of verbal medicine is visualizing getting up and walking out of the hospital. It's critically important that we do that. An exercise physiologist, I read this not long ago from Cleveland Clinic, compared the results of those who actually did physical exercises to those who carried out virtual exercises in their mind. And in the physical exercise group, strength increased by 53%, while the group that just did mental contractions, if you will, increased their strength by 35%. We talk about this all the time, Bill, the power of your mind, folks, to affect not just the way you age, but your overall health and vitality is is critically important. Seems like we undervalue things that we can't prove in a lab, right, Mark? It's not like they're experiments where you'll get the exact same result every time, but everybody out there has got to believe that there's something to that. How we feel about ourselves, how we feel about moving forward makes a difference, even when it comes to healing. You know, Mark Sacco, I read in, in his book, says that if a patient walks into a doctor's office and there is a piece of equipment that they have read is brand new and transformative and can help cure them, just seeing that automatically makes the chances of their outcome improve dramatically. The power of our mind is incredible. And I guess the same token, if people are grim, then you start to worry. But around here, we're positive, we're ready to go, and we'll see you again next time on Growing Boulder. The Growing Boulder radio show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tell-